The Guardian. Does the best art come from hardship and secrets? Should body issues be discussed more often in arts and culture? And are arts festivals too obscure for mainstream audiences? Welcome to the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast, the Naked Festival episode. These are some of the ideas that we've been talking about, inspired by Sydney Festival, which has just finished up. It's January 2015. I'm Alex Spring. I write about arts and culture for The Guardian Australia. We're joined today by most of The Guardian Australia culture team and a very special guest. Nancy Groves, culture editor for The Guardian Australia, an arts festival veteran, but Sydney festival newbie. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Alex. Monica Tan, deputy culture editor for The Guardian Australia, who's been checking out Sydney Festival's mammoth musical program. Hi, Monica. Hello. And our very special guest, performer Adrian Truscott, who has been part of Sydney Festival as one half of the Vava Sisters and also in her own show, Asking For It. Hi, Adrian. Hi, ladies. First up, arts festival lineups are often accused of being too obscure for mainstream audiences with odd overseas acts parachuted in and peculiar local acts, which probably wouldn't be picked up for normal Uh, seasons. Artistic directors invariably defend themselves by saying festivals are exactly the right context in which to discover new work and new artists. But what about the punters? Our producer, Miles, spoke to some Sydney festival goers at the Festival Village and asked them about what they had seen at the festival. Yeah, I was lucky enough to go see Jessica Pratt at the, the famous Spiegel tent. And had you heard of Jessica Platt before you saw her? She was playing at the festival. Yeah, no, I, I, I'd heard her around on community radio and have become a big fan of her. And I kind of thought she was never the act, the sort of act that would make it to Australia or get brought out here. So and I think Sydney Festival is really cool for that because they always seem to bring out acts that may not otherwise be able to get to Australia. So I was very excited to see her, and it, and it lived up to the hype. Um, I think you were seeing opera in the Domain on Saturday. So do you like the large concerts that they have here at the festival? Yeah, they're really good. Is it the kind of stuff you've heard of before or are, is it things that you might not have gone to if the festival hadn't been putting it on? Um, definitely not have gone to before. I'm just waiting for the, to see the clean. Uh, have you heard of the clean before? I hadn't to be honest before I came here because I'm in the UK but uh, I thought they maybe like the, cl- the Clash and punk bands like that, but they're probably not exactly the same. And, and so when you're looking through the festival guide, are you looking for acts that you've heard of or new discoveries? Well, to be honest, there's, I didn't see anybody in there that I recognise, but uh, uh, there's quite a good mixture of um, different types of performers, you know, you know, a whole range of performers, so it's kind of, you know, okay, they may not be the same as all those that I know of, but... And so do you like this discovery you're having looking through the program or would you like there to be some familiar acts as well? Well, the reality of it is that uh, well-known performers will be $150, $200 a performance and not, uh, not, 50, not full 50, you know, so it's good to see up-and-coming groups because, um, you know, because it's a, a low-key dollar. Oh, I've come to stuff just out of uh, something that looked interesting. Or I knew, so, or, or because I looked at it, it, it had a backstory to it that sounded interesting. It seems like most people we spoke to enjoyed the fact that they could see new work. But there is an argument that Australian arts festivals, which are largely government funded, should be aimed at a wider audience. So, should there be more mainstream acts, or would they overshadow new work? 
or are these festivals the way to find your new favourite band? Adrian, you've been on the festival circuit for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you think? Um, I might have a a particular or unique view coming from New York and from America where we do not have arts funding from the government, basically. I mean, a bit. but um, So as an American coming here, I am really thrilled by the culture that the festival circuit creates because it seems like... Their, um, in general, Australian festival culture is aimed at getting everybody out of the house and into a sort of common outdoor space to share a bit of time. And it seems like they take they make a lot of effort to say, like, come on out. It's going to be a good time. And we've put some shows together um, so that I think in a lot of ways even more what might have previously be thought been thought of as less accessible or more underground work suddenly becomes sort of more commonplace but also special like it's an ex- a special way to experience um you know something that's maybe pulled a little bit from the corners literally out into the sunlight um and i think australia is really smart about that and that um my experience performing for australian audiences is that they're um, quite open-minded and up for it and um, out to have a good time. And um, and that's really exciting to me. I find in the States, um, audiences are much more ghettoized. Like, oh, well, I'm a dancer. I go see dance. Or I like comedy. I go to comedy clubs. Or, you know, and here I find people, I think because of the festivals, people are, it's less like genre specific, what they're willing to see. They sort of believe that things have been curated with an eye to making them feel welcome and excited about seeing it. Is that how most audiences find you and discover the Vava sisters and and your own I think so, yeah. I mean, we've already, we've always received a ton of support from Australia, the the festivals themselves, as well as the audiences. Um, So... I don't think that they, I certainly don't think they heard about us from America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Nancy, you've spoken to a number of the festival directors about this very question. What did you find? Yeah, we have the kind of great luxury of sort of usually hearing about the programs at an early, early date, and often that involves sitting down with the festival director as they proudly take take you through the proof copy of their brochure. And you know, there's a lot that uh, that rests on them. I think Leaven Bertels of Sydney sort of argued to me when we went through it that it shouldn't be about the personality of the person programming. It shouldn't be about the taste of the person programming. That they should have the city and the people in mind. But I think that's dissembling a little bit. I think that you'll see from festival to festival a real variety uh, and difference between what gets put on. And um, of course, someone like Adrian, you perform at a range of the festivals around Australia. I think some of them at the moment are more successful than others, and surely that has to be because of the people um, putting them together. Um, they, they're in a hard place, though. You know, they've got to make them work financially, so there's got to be some surefire hits in them. Um, but also, I think all of them, as artistic people, want want and believe in this idea of introducing new work to to audiences who who often may not be at the theatres and and the concert halls and the and the um and the gig venues the rest of the year i think festivals are proven to bring in audiences who are not regular arts going audiences just because they're so much more visible in a city than your average arts programs um so yeah they have a really hard balancing act and um some of them do it more 
successfully than others. What do you think about the, the smaller festivals as they sort of grow, um, like MoFo and that sort of thing? They're, they're deliberately positioned as being a bit left field and then they sort of uh, grow and they become more popular. Is that hard to do the, the balancing act between being a little bit obscure and uh, and and still keeping up with well, the Well, the big city festivals are a very different thing to the more boutique festivals whether that's music or arts festivals um and uh what i mean what does success look like for a festival director i don't know ultimately they want people to come they want people to buy tickets um and i mean if they talk if they do what i was talking about successfully they'll get that happening even with unknown shows um you know uh some of the biggest successes of this year's Sydney Festival are really challenging work. And I don't know whether we can call it mainstream work or not mainstream work. So, for instance, Nothing to Lose, which was one of the earliest sellouts uh, of 2015, is, OK, it's the work of a really well-known artistic director. It's her last work. People want to see what she's going to go out with, um, with force majeure. But, um, you know, it's a it, it's exploring really interesting ideas that I think we're actually going to talk about later. Absolutely. We will we'll explore the ideas of body issue and body shaming, which come through in, in Nothing to Lose. Um, but yeah, what what do you think, Monica? Well, I think it's interesting because um, you know when I look at look at all these festival lineups, I actually do think they're often they seem quite obscure to me. And then I'll go to a show like um, at Sydney Festival. I went to, I hope I'm saying this right, Exolorous White, um, this amazing duo, uh, an, an Australian rock drummer with a Greek lutist. Um, you know, that's an unusual combination. <laughs> Definitely not the kind of music you're going to hear on commercial radio. And I was really surprised to find a completely packed Spiegel tent and very kind of, um, you know, fans who are really dedicated to the music and who obviously were very familiar with the music. So I think that... Um, I think maybe, you know, it's possible that these days that line between what is mainstream and what is obscure anyway is kind of blurred. The internet, like, kind of really helps um, connect um, fans with with artists and fans with each other and grow that fan base. So often now, instead of having, you know, only five big um, rock bands, you know, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles or whatever, you'll actually have that the the population kind of spread out between lots of kind of middle-sized um, acts. I, I can't speak on a theatre. I mean, would you say that's is that becoming the case in theatre and comedy and other forms of arts? I don't know. One of the issues raised by the sound bites, I think, is that is a is a kind of access issue, which is that actually, you know, all these different acts probably do have big fan bases online or throughout whatever. And there's the issue of things selling out too early and actually not there not being a chance for new people to discover these works. You said that your gig was sold out. You had the lucky lucky you were in the lucky position of, of going to review it as a journalist. But I wonder how many people would have that chance to kind of catch on if it already sold out and I see we, we have a lot of problems with that in theatre that you know the really decent shows the good shows often sell out to the regulars before they ever get a chance to show to new people I wonder if that's also sort of symptomatic of our culture now that it is so fragmented that there are so many it's always encouraged to find sort of unusual acts and unusual things and to find the next uh, next big thing or then you know there's a discovery element to it what do mm-hmm. you think Adrian? Um, a lot of things that just came up from this discussion one of one of which is even just the word mainstream i i tend to think it in at this stage our notion of mainstream can be a little bit knee-jerk um like an extreme version i had was when i finished up in edinburgh in 2013 with this show um 
I was interviewing with the BBC, and the gentleman was sort of like, well, what are you going to do with this now? You know, you, um, you're not wearing pants. It's, it's, he could barely say what the show was about. He's like, the show is about rape. It's not, you know, you're at the fringe. Where else are you going to do this, basically? And I said, well, what are you saying? And he said, well, I mean, it's not very mainstream. And I said, well, if you think about how many people like to laugh how many women there are in the world and how many people get raped. It's incredibly mainstream. And <laughs> I similarly, <laughs> I think a show like Nothing to Lose, like what are you calling mainstream? I, I don't mean Can us Can I just here. ask, yeah. what did he say to that? He didn't know. He goes, oh, well, yes, well, we'll just <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Yes, <laughs> thing might be coming up. Yeah, and he was sort of taken like, oh, well, I guess you're, and I was like, what? I'm being a little bit cheeky, but that's actually true. This is the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. What do you think about arts festival programming? Are they too mainstream or too obscure? Visit us on our Facebook page, www.facebook.com backslash Guardian Australia Culture and tell us your thoughts. Later, we'll talk about one of Sydney Festival's most anticipated shows that Nancy mentioned, Nothing to Lose, and discuss the place of body issues in art and culture. But first, one of the art world's most overused cliches is that hardship and secrets inspire artistic creativity. Songwriters, actors, filmmakers, novelists often say that heartbreak, despair, poverty, and the toughest times inspire great art. One of my favourite Sydney Festival shows was What No Fish, a show Guardian UK critic Lynn Gardner rated as one of her top 10 of 2014. In the show, Danny Braverman tells the story of his great uncle Abe, who drew a picture on his wage packet for his wife Celia every week, chronicling their lives over more than 50 years. Danny says their lives were tough. He describes it as a journey along a road that went uphill both ways. But their story is actually universally inspiring. Danny himself had been through a really tough time when he discovered the idea for this show. He'd had a life-threatening illness and a very serious operation. When I asked him where the great art comes from hardship, he had a really interesting take on that idea. Because everybody's going to die, and you're either going to die with a long and painful illness, you're going to get hit by a truck or something or other, it's not, it ain't going to be pleasant in the run-up to it, and you're going to leave someone and they're going to grieve. So how do we make meaning out of that? Well, some people believe in a god or gods, um, some people do it through their family, some people do it through walking through forests and through nature. But they're all kind of creative acts. It could be making a meal, couldn't it? That kind of business. That, let's, make, let's make a meal for the whole family. That, you know. And art is that. It's, it's uh, making meaning out of stuff we don't understand and dealing with the only certainty we have, which is that at some point we won't be here. Nancy, you saw the show. What did you think of it? I mean, truly, this is one of my highlights and actually a real uh, treat for me. It's something that I missed uh, when it was first produced in the UK. It was really great to see it picked up, brought across the other side of the world. Um, and yeah, it took me a while to see it in a way, but um, I did. And um, it was just deeply personal. It was tiny. It was everything that I loved from a festival show, you know, put on in a small uh, black box, uh, uh, one person and a, and a, and a box of, uh, of drawings. Um, 
but it sort of spoke universal truths. Well, they had they had tough tough times, and they had been through tough times, and I think that was what was interesting. They they weren't you know people who'd had everything handed to them. They were post war or coming up to the war, and they had a son who was disabled. So I think all of those things inspired uh, the creation of the work and and the art that Abe actually did all the way through. Adrian, I'm really interested in your opinion on on this topic. Mm. Have has hardship and uh, family secrets and that sort of thing inspired your work? I think I might have a surprising answer. I, I don't think in any way that that's like the only thing that makes good art. I think rigor and willingness to fail and being really true to yourself in terms of your own uniqueness, whether that falls into the category of autobiography or hardship, um, is one thing, but it also could be just that you're a real weirdo and want to see if you can pull something off. Like I, um, because uh, I think hardship and well-told personal stories, especially if that story is then, um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, elaborated into something that's formal and formally interesting, then that can make for really great art. And if the if that happens to be performance, if that performer is brave and seasoned and interesting and vulnerable, then that all could work and be amazing. But I've seen some really trite shit about really deep stuff because the person, the artist wasn't up to it or, you know, there was a story to tell, but they weren't willing to, like, tell the messy version or the, I don't know. So... For me, someone being really rigorous as an artist is the best way to make good work. And sometimes that can be really formally abstract and have nothing to do with content or narrative of that sort. It actually makes me think of the new Girls series. I watched the second episode yesterday when Hannah Horvath, the main character in Girls, um, Lena Dunham's character, goes off to uh, grad school to, um, to, um, to, to sort of learn how to be a writer-writer. And she goes to her first crit and reads out this horrendous short story about um, letting her boyfriend hit her <laughs> and, um, and gets the comeuppance she really deserves because it's trite and it's, it's empty and um, it's quite a funny moment for the character um, uh, but painful <laughs> at yeah. the same time. I think maybe it's not hardship, maybe it's honesty and as you say, yeah. whether that honesty is about your own life or your honesty about what you want to achieve in your art, yeah. I think it's dishonest work that often falls on its face. Yeah. And I think your, I would add, like, well, to your point, it is often hard to be honest about family secrets and about these deeply personal things. Um, I, yeah, I've tried writing myself about stories from my own family and I've always had to throw them aside half unfinished because I could recognise that I wasn't emotionally capable of kind of processing the, the, the things that were going on in those stories. They were still far too close to me. And so you end up, not being able to create an experience for an audience, you're too busy kind of slashing your wrists all over the page and not making actually yeah. good art, right? Yeah. I mean, I also think that we're experiencing a period where some really provocative stories of difficulty are emerging as really successful art pieces, and that's really exciting. And I do think that's because some of those people haven't been able to tell those stories as with as easy um, access in years past, but I think they're succeeding because those artists are in top form.
You're listening to the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. For all our Sydney Festival news and reviews, head over to theguardian.com, click on Culture, and then click on Sydney Festival. Coming up, we're going to talk about what we're looking forward to in February, and we want to hear what you're excited about. But first, one of the most highly anticipated Sydney Festival shows was Nothing to Lose, created by Force Majeure's Kate Champion and artist and fat activist Kelly Jean Drinkwater. The show explores the real-life experiences of those with larger bodies through dance. When I spoke to Kate and Kelly Jean, they said that the time had come to explore those topics through dance. Yeah, I would say that in terms of the arts, that there is a sort of much more of an interest in gussing other bodies and things I feel like that, you know, this feels like the groundswell was happening. And so this Nothing to Lose feels very timely. I think people are very ready for this, that they feel like it's a long time coming in one way and that, you know, uh, when I've talked to people about it, there's quite often a sense of when that we're doing this and we're seeing these bodies. This is such a, you know, a ripe and potent subject matter for a dance work. It's an interesting topic, but how do we have that conversation? Is there a danger of, a, of being too politically correct? Are we frightened of the topic or too judgmental? Neil Laboot's play Fat Pig was accused of being too simplistic and Lionel Shriver's book Big Brother had good reviews, but it wasn't as well received as her previous novel We Need to Talk About Kevin. So are the arts the place to discuss body issues? And how does body shaming affect performers? Adrian, given that both your shows, you're in various states of undress, you must have some views on this. I think uh, there's so much stuff attached to bodies all the time, male and female, um, young and old. So that I, I think it's a pretty endless um, canvas to, to use to think about stuff in the world, you know, whether they're fed or underfed, um, you know, like. There's a joke in America about, like, all the poor people are fat. And they're like, you know what? You don't walk around other countries and be like, oh, they are poor because they're fat. Like, uh, I think there's, you know, there's just a ton to look at with that sort of stuff. And I personally um, still ground a lot of work that uh, that I do or that we do in the body, even if we're, even if I'm talking now for an hour, you know. Um, but I think there's so many ways to use bodies to... Um, to still use them to talk about them. Certainly anybody could argue that being naked is a gimmick or, um, but it's a useful gimmick. Um, and I still think there are ways to use nudity, male or female or trans or queer, um, to tell different stories about how our bodies function in society and how they're viewed in society. Um, there, there's a lot of work now that's like sort of reminding people that you can look at a human form or a naked human form or whatever, and all sorts of things can still be located in it. Like it's not just like there is a fat, quote unquote, a fat m woman or there's a naked woman talking about rape. So what's she saying and why is she naked? And to be able to say like a human body, particularly on stage, can be a site where the audience has to contemplate a whole bunch of things at once, like, you know, pleasure, comedy, awkwardness, clumsiness, desire, you know, sexiness, disgust, like all of those things can happen all at once in a body. And I think sometimes we think like, particularly if it's an alternative, 
I'm using that term loosely, but an alternative body being presented, then it's easy to just attach our feelings about what seems alternative. And then I think there's a lot of work out there that's going like, I know what you see. You're seeing a quote-unquote fat dancer, which we don't usually see, but I'm going to show you how many other layers are at play in that moving body and soul. Mm. So I think that's pretty gorgeous. Yeah, there's a there's a point there's a point in your in the Baba Sisters last night where I almost completely forgot that you uh, you and Tanya were completely naked. Yeah. On it was actually more about what else was going on on, on the stage, and right. you're not even thinking about the the body at that point. Which is a little bit our point too. Which right. is also to say, like I know you think when you see a naked woman that you're going to sit for an hour. I mean, I've been told that in my solo show too. They're like people have said, why do you think anyone's going to listen to what you have to say when you're up there naked? And I'm like. Because I grant most humans a little more credit that if someone speaks for an hour, at some point they're going to hear something and not just see a vagina. Yeah. So in your stagecraft, I guess there's a point where like you absolutely want people to focus on the fact you're naked and then forget about it. Yeah. And then maybe come back. Do exactly. you kind of balance that through the hour of your show? Yeah, in certain ways in in mine. And then like I have a moment where I put a dress on and it seems like I'm going to cover up and it actually is becomes a more ludicrous way to look at my so-called naked body. And I feel like that kind of makes a point of like, look, I'm now more dressed and look more naked in a way. Um, and with the Vow Vow Sisters show, the show that we're doing here, um, men that you've seen in the audience, we sort of play with becoming them. And then you see... Two women who you may not know if we're straight or gay or queer or ha where we fall in the sexuality spectrum and we're naked and that might be pleasing or gross to whoever's out in the audience. And then our, you know, we play out a sort of heightened silly femininity on stage and then all of a sudden our body language becomes a bit more butch as we try to take on the guy's body language. And I think that's funny to see a naked lady's body doing Mm. In real time. Absolutely. Just to go like, even when you walk around and you seem like you're just you, like a lady, I'm, I'm walking around in a body language that I've learned. Some of that might feel intrinsic to who I am and some of it might not. And I think a stage stage is a, a way to really show that a lot of that is, is still clothing we put on, yeah, how right. we move in our bodies. Kay had something interesting to say, which is that she, when they, they spoke about Nothing to Lose, is they actually got a lot of reaction on, on social media, people saying, how dare they, um, how dare these, you know, larger bodies take on dance? Uh, and so it was, she was kind of shocked that people still reacted in that way. So, I mean, should it be on our stages? Should, should we be discussing that? Well, I think it's a tricky one with dance because there's so dance is a, is a hugely varied art form, and there's kinds of classical ballet where the visual like aim is for the corps de ballet to uh, to d to be as one, to dance as one, to look as one, and there's this idea of a, a, a of a very defined look that is just part of the aesthetic. And um, I think that there's contemporary dance where it aims for exactly the opposite uh, and plays on the huge strengths and variety of each individual dancer to create the work. Um, is it a bad thing that people paying to see the Bolshoi ballet um, would hope that all the dancers look a particular way? It's kind of part of the, that art form and I don't think that we should criticize the audience members for wanting that. Um, but who are these people? <laughs> um, 
saying to Kate, um, force majeure, that they're, they're horrified. I don't know who that audience is. <laughs> well, this because is Because their yeah. work over the, their history has been hugely kind of varied and experimental. And, and so I, I sort of wonder who these... They're called internet trolls. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's amazing that even dance has this. It has 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 this. It shows that no area of arts and culture is without its without its trolls. Mm. I guess the the thing it was really interesting hearing you talk about bodies as a as a dancer or, and someone who uses your body very much in your work because I'm a writer so I don't virtually don't use my body at all. It's and I'm actually. I feel like I'm often quite disassociated from my body. It's something that I really don't give a lot of thought to um, on, on a day-to-day basis or even how people perceive me through my body. So it was really interesting to um, to realise that our bodies can be maps for so much discourse and, and, and so many, like, interactions, um, you know, in, in ways that you, you don't always control. That that was yeah. kind of um, really interesting to me, mm. and kind of scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you lift right. them the head up. Yeah. I've heard that said about a lot of writers. You know that they they exist here. Um, mm-hmm. That's not going to work on my day. That they exist from their shoulders <laughs> up. Um, and uh, and yeah, I sort of agree with you. I don't. I'm not someone who thinks of myself in a physical sense that often. So. I think I think the thing like I often got I, I mean I remember thinking about this when um all those leaked pictures of all those actresses Jennifer Lawrence Jennifer yeah. Lawrence and and whoever came out because for me like it, I I'm just completely disinterested in seeing those actors naked because a naked body just doesn't really mean a lot to me at all and it, it, the intense curiosity from the general public who have seen these people in movies a million times who've who've virtually in some weird way own these women's bodies already um just through all these art forms for some reason that wasn't enough like they had to see this other you know it's it was some weird control thing going on where they had to see these private um photos of of these women um naked i don't know for me it just i couldn't relate to that intense interest that that the public had about these photos but the control issue is the, the point right you choose to do what you do in your right. shows lena dunham yeah. chooses to do what she does in girls and she's right. spoken very um regularly about how for her it's no biggie <laughs> right uh for the nudity is the least of the scary things that she does on girls do you think that's the difference if you were to have leak, nude photos leaked of you how would you feel about it i don't know given that Well, I mean, I know because I put myself on stage naked, I take on the possibility that there'll be a naked photo of me online that I can't control. Like if I'm not, if I don't understand that, then I've made a really direly wrong choice for what I do. But from from what you were saying, Monica, part of what interests me is um, uh, from the quote we just, or so many of those people were trying to say like, why are these actresses getting so upset? They look great. Like, they look good enough that I wasn't upset when I crossed their line of privacy (laughs) and saw their naked body just the way I wanted it to look. What's wrong with that? And you're like, "Um, it has nothing to do with the woman. It has everything to do with you. And that's the same logic as the person saying, how dare these people who have a body which confronts what I think a body should look like deign to get on stage and move around in it and then you're just like that's that's why then this work becomes massive because there's this huge element of the population that thinks they're allowed to hack into or you know 
benefit from someone else hacking into someone's private account and seeing their naked body that they crave for some weird reason and see it because it pleases them. Mm. And that because it pleases them, that woman should be like, oh, thanks. <laughs> and that these other women yeah, right. who are amazing artists and have, you know, just want to dance. Like, forget about whether you think they're brave or not. If I was them, I would just be like, shut up. I'm a dancer. Go away. I'm just working. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. You know? absolutely. And they would are like, so by the same token, are they meant to say, oh, I'm sorry. Was I too fat for you? I'm so sorry. Yeah. Whereas these other women are, are supposed to go, I'm sorry I got upset. I'm so glad you liked me. Yeah. It just has nothing to do with the actual person inhabiting the body. Mm. And it's just about perception, which is why we make art. Mm. Well, this is it. I mean, and also I wonder about the audience's expectations of what they're going to see. And this is why it should be, it should be discussed. Yeah, but I mean, if we don't, like the people that are angry that there's an oversized body dancing, if they never see that oversized body dancing or even know they're there, or even go through their weird process of getting online to go rah, rah, rah about it, then they're never going to, their, their expect, expectation will never change and then we'll only be able to see certain things. So if they win, we yeah. all lose. And they're not going to win because, like, they're just in the minority. Thank goodness. It's like people aren't going to be less queer, less female. You know, like, <laughs> things are changing. People are going to have to get used to it. Now it's time for our regular fangirl segment where we talk about the things that we're looking forward to next month. So, Nancy, what are you looking forward to in February? I'm getting on a plane again. Um, goodness me, I need to get registered for those regular flyer points or something and also feel very bad and plant lots of trees somewhere. But I am going to Perth for the Fringe and the festival. Um, and very exciting. Haven't been to Western Australia before. Feels like a common refrain. Um, but there's so much to look forward to, not least probably seeing your show, which is coming to Perth, Adrian, I know. But also um, probably the two biggest draws of the festival are both the Giants, uh, which is a massive sort of 30-foot marionette kind of show wandering through the streets of Perth. It's taken millions to bring it. It's been a real result for the city to, to get it. I think it was last done in Liverpool um, in the UK, but also the Rabbits, uh, a new opera um, adapting the really popular children's book by Sean Tan. It's full of politics and lots of interesting stuff. So while it's a kid's story, I think it's ripe for a modern opera treatment. Let's see uh, whether there are people of all shapes and sizes in it. We'll, we'll see that. But yeah, there's just going to be loads. So I think you're coming with me, Monica. They both sound amazing and I can't wait to see them. Um, as for me, mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to Chinese New Year because Sydney always puts on a big shindig during Chinese New Year. Um, there is one particular work that I'm looking forward to coming out, which is coming out. It's um, it's a work by a Chinese artist and he takes the terracotta warriors in this western city called Xi'an. I've actually seen the original terracotta terracotta warriors and they're amazing but he takes their shape and form and he turns them into brightly coloured paper lanterns which is another form of Chinese um, another Chinese tradition um, and I just think it's a really, it's kind of it's very Chinese it, it, well, it, it has the hallmarks of Chinese modern art which is, it's, it's big, splashy colourful, big spectacle um, and, and draws from traditional Chinese culture but but still being like very kind of modern and um, you know which is 
basically summarizes China itself. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, and Adrian, you're going to be here for a while, so uh, you're going to you're going to be here in Perth and in Adelaide as well. But mm -hmm. what are you looking forward to seeing? Um, I'm really looking. Well, I'm now. I'm looking forward to seeing those two shows you two just mentioned. Um, Bryony Kimmings, who's a London-based um, theatre maker and performance artist. She's doing a show that's a co-commission with Theatre Works and Daniel Clark out of Melbourne um, called Fake It Till You Make It, which is um, a piece about mental illness. She's doing it with um, her collaborator as someone who is not a performer, and that sort of thing always interests me. I like seeing how you know non-performers, um, the myriad things that they can bring to the stage. Um, and she is somebody who I've seen tackle very difficult um, awkward topics with incredible sophistication and humor and absolute silliness. So, um, and I've, we've got a bit of mental illness in my family, so I'll be interested to see someone take that on. Um, uh, on a slightly cheekier note, there's a great show called um, uh, Misbehaves Game Show, which is doing the unheard of, which is celebrating phones being in live theater and our like <laughs> unbelievably constantly palpable need for them. So instead of saying turn it all off, it's like this sort of hilarious release where everyone just gets to take them out. And it's a very fun game, but it's also a play on our obsessiveness with our technology. That's in Adelaide. So I'm excited to see that. That sounds great. I've and a very that. dear friend of mine from New York City, um, a, a trans queer MC named Murray Hill, he goes way back with the Vava Sisters, is MCing um, not so much a festival show, but a show at the Opera House called Club Swizzle, which ah. is um, at a huge spectacle of amazing feats and performances with Meow Meow. Like, that show probably won't have any trouble getting patrons in, but I also feel like it's doing a little shift on cabaret by having um, a trans MC from America with an um, alternative body shape on stage. I'm looking forward to seeing that too. I'm actually going to see it in the next uh, week or so, so I can't wait. That'll be great. That'll be really... uh, I'm so excited because Laneways is finally here, which is uh, a great music festival. Um, it actually starts on the 31st of January, so I'm, I'm being a bit cheeky with my recommendations for February, but it is in Sydney on the 1st of February and then it goes on to do Adelaide, Melbourne free and Fremantle as well. Um, there's so many great acts and there'll be lots of running around between between shows from Andy Bull and Banks and Future Island who I'm slightly obsessed with to St Vincent and then on to flight facilities as well. So that's going to be great and we're actually all going to go along. The whole team will be there so we can't wait to, to see that. But um, that's it for this month. Thank you for joining us. If you head over to theguardian.com and click on culture, you'll find our culture podcast page with a list of everything we've talked about today and links to more information. We'd also love to chat to you on our Guardian Australia Culture Facebook page, facebook.com backslash Guardian Australia Culture, on Twitter at GDN Oz Culture, or send us your culture pics on Instagram, GDN Oz Culture. You can follow us all on Twitter, follow Monica on at Monica Tan, follow Nancy on at Nancy Arts, follow me on at Alex Spring and follow Adrian on at Mrs. underscore Truscott. For now, thank you, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you, Monica.
Thanks. And thank you for joining us, Adrian. Thank you. Thank you also to our producer, Miles, and also to our technical wizard, Jason. We'll see you next month back on the Guardian Australia podcast. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.